You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. This week, it's all about the father of vaccination, Edward Jenner. If you were to visit London's Trafalgar Square today, you'd see the famous lions look up at Nelson gazing down from his column and perhaps even feed a few pigeons. What you would not see is a statue raised in celebration of the work of Edward Jenner, although it once occupied the fourth plinth. Gareth Williams, a professor of medicine at the University of Bristol, is backing a campaign to have Jenner's statue reinstated. And in the BMJ this week, he has written a piece setting out his case. The BMJ's Mabel Chu caught up with him to find out a bit more about the man behind the vaccine. I'd have to say that I think the milkmaids of Gloucestershire are actually quite liberal, if not promiscuous, with their knowledge. But before all that, I've got in the studio with me Sally Carter and Helen Jakes from BMJ Editorial, who will take us through this week's news. Hello, Sally. Hello. Hello, Helen. Hello. So what have you got for us this week? Well, for me, the big news this week is Barack Obama getting the healthcare reform bill approved in the House of Representatives and signed into law. Uh, It means that 32 million Americans who weren't covered by health insurance now are. Uh, And how difficult was it to get this bill through? Uh, It was a pretty close-run thing. It only got through by seven votes, and there was a last-minute deal over the potential for government-funded abortions. It's a watered-down version of the original bill, but it is a start, and it's a historic one because US presidents have been trying and failing to get um, universal health care for nearly a century. Um, The drama of the debate over this bill is as exciting as any episode of The West Wing. Oh, do tell. (laughs) Well, there's been death threats, and even now Republicans are trying to throw a spanner in the works with various challenges to the Senate over um, proposals to deny erectile dysfunction drugs to sex offenders and lots of populist challenges like that. Um, Susan Denser has written a great article in the BMJ over the debate over the bill in the past year, And it includes everything from the key players dying of cancer to them getting in trouble for not paying taxes, general wheeling and dealing and naughtiness all over the place. Um, And there's also in Susan's article a very good box which summarises what the bill does. Ah, so what is actually in the bill? Well, there's also an editorial in the BMJ by Gavin Yamey um, that gives a really good overview of the bill, what it aimed to do, where it succeeds and where it doesn't. It's a very complicated thing. But for me, it seems to do two main things. And can you talk about those two main things a bit? Well, firstly, it's going to cover more people. Um, It's going to extend coverage to 94% of US residents. Um, All Americans have to have health insurance or they're going to get fined. All employers have to provide it or they're going to get fined. And there's going to be subsidies and tax credits that will help the poorer people. Um, The second thing it does is it's going to step on dodgy practices by health insurance companies. They're not going to be able to refuse to cover people who have pre-existing conditions. Um, They're not going to be able to put a cap on how much cover they provide or cancel the insurance if you get ill. But that sounds quite a lot of coverage. Uh, What is not covered by this bill? There's lots of things the bill doesn't do and debate's going to continue for years over the small print. Uh, Various sections of of the population won't be covered. People who don't have citizenship... Mm. It's not by no means is it a, a, a perfect thing, but it, it's a historic one and it's a great start for them. So it's good news all round for the US. I think so. Thank you, Sally. Now over to you, Helen. What have you got for us? 
This 10-year-old boy has congenital tracheal stenosis, so his windpipe only measured one millimetre across and he couldn't breathe unaided. In this um, pioneering operation, a donor trachea was taken, bathed in enzymes and stripped down to its collagen scaffold. The doctors then took bone marrow from the boy's hip and isolated the stem cells, which were injected into the trachea. The seeded organ was then immediately transplanted into the boy, from where it grew from a fledgling trachea into a fully functioning organ. So, so when did this boy have his operation? From what I gather, it was just this week, but um, there's been a bit of controversy in that the story was leaked from Great Ormond Street and the team that undertook the transplant had to hastily arrange a press conference oh, to I tell see. everyone about it. So from what I gather, they have no idea about the long-term outcomes in this case because they've just had to press release it right now. And uh, has there been anything similar undertaken beforehand, or was this the first of its kind? Well, not quite the first. In November 2008, a very similar operation was undertaken on a Colombian woman with TB. So it's it pretty much the same. They took a donor trachea, stripped it down to the collagen scaffold, repopulated it with the recipient's stem cells. But in this case, the trachea was then grown in a lab, Whereas um, in the British boy, the trachea was immediately transplanted into him from which the stem cells grew the appropriate tissues to cover the inner and outer surfaces of the windpipe. So what what are the key benefits from this kind of procedure rather than a straightforward transplant? Well, the main benefit is that you're transplanting tissue from the recipient's own body. That's a tissue that's been built using his stem cells. So the risk of rejection is much, much lower and the recipient can avoid using immunosuppressants. Also, in, in this case, where the trachea was grown actually in the boy, is kind of cheaper and much quicker than being grown in a lab. Right, right. Well, that sounds like um, there's hope for the future for many people with um, congenital conditions of that kind. In fact, um, one particular application of this technique is not just for straightforward transplants but also to treat damaged organs in situ with stem cells Mm. so instead of waiting for an organ to fail in the future we might be able to use stem cells to actually repair this broken down organ instead of just transplanting it Mm -hmm. Mm that would be really good news well thank you helen now mabel too talks to gareth williams about the life and times of edward jenner with the historical snippets provided by the bmj's ed davis i have with me Professor Gareth Williams, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Bristol. So just to set the scene, Gareth, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like living in Jenner's times, the fear of smallpox and um, the size of the epidemic? Uh, Smallpox was an absolutely vile disease. Um, It was very common. Uh, Your lifetime chances of catching it were about one in three Uh, before vaccination came along. And uh, of the people who got it, anywhere between 20% and 50% would die. So it carried off about 1 in 12 of people in most civilizations before the advent of vaccination. Um, It tended to hit children, so it was one of the major killers in the under fives. And it wasn't just uh, the angel of death. You know, this particular angel had a much wider brief in that it left up to a third of its survivors badly scarred uh, and people could be really mutilated by smallpox scarring particularly on the face and it was also a very common cause of blindness because of corneal scarring so it was the the commonest cause of blindness in in Europe in in adults of working age up until the advent of vaccination so a really really unpleasant disease 
and people were terrified of it. Um, people were similarly terrified of plague, but plague was something that uh, came along every 20 years or so when it was at its peak. Uh, TB was something that, other, that every, everybody was afraid of as well. That actually carried off probably more people, killed up to 20% of the population at around this time. Um, and it was a sort of a slow, lingering death. But I think it was the, the whole package that came with smallpox. It was, the, uh, it was a horrible disease. It was a horrible way to die. Um, you could spread it much more obviously than the spread of tuberculosis. And again, even if you lived, then you stood the chance. You did not know how you were going to emerge if you were going to emerge from your sick room when you went down with smallpox. Those are really sobering facts. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, tell us a bit about Edward Jenner. He is somebody that most of us will have heard of, and um, those of us who are less well-versed in medical history will have some vague recollection of smallpox and vaccinations being associated with the name Jenner. So tell us, who was Jenner and what did he do? Right, well, Jenner, Edward Jenner, was a very, a very interesting chap. Um, he lived just up the road from where I'm speaking from, in a little village called Rockhampton, just down the road from Berkeley. And Jenner was a man of many parts. He was a gentleman scientist, uh, a country doctor, trained as a surgeon with, uh, with the hunters in London. And he was insatiably curious. So he had a lot of the ingredients for a really good scientist, but he was also quite a flawed personality in many ways. He was hopeless at planning. Uh, he was not terribly good at writing things up. Uh, he took umbrage very easily, and he did not react terribly well to criticism. So in some ways, uh, it's, uh, it's lucky, it's fortunate that he was able to make the impact that he did. He was not the first person to make the connection between an attack of cowpox and protection against subsequent attacks of, uh, of smallpox. Uh, that had been done many times in lots of uh, cow-rich places around the world. There is that apocryphal story of his conversation with a milkmaid. Well, the, the, I have to say that I think the milkmaids of Gloucestershire are actually quite liberal, if not promiscuous, with their knowledge. And uh, lots of people around here seem to have picked up the folk tradition, which again, uh, by convention, was spread by milkmaids. And if, if they had picked up this rather nasty disease called cowpox, from the cows that they were milking, then they would enjoy protection from smallpox for the rest of their days. So we don't actually have documented evidence of the conversation with the milkmaid, um, but he certainly picked up the intelligence from somewhere, and it probably was that setting. The thing that he did, which justifies his place in the pantheon of the all-time medical greats, is that he went out and told the world about it, and he made sure that people heard about vaccination and they, they took its potential seriously. And would you like to take us through the steps in his experiment? So he took some cowpox pus and scratched it into the skin of normal volunteers to see if this would protect them against smallpox. And his first experiment was done with an eight-year-old lad called James Phipps, who was the son of the Jenner's gardener. And uh, the pus came from the hand of uh, a girl called Sarah Nelms. Blossom was the name of the cow involved. Uh, Blossom's hide is still around, preserved in St. George's Medical School, and there are several sets of horns that all claim to be the authentic item, a bit like uh, the body parts of saints, really. What uh, Jenna did was to take some of the pus from Sarah Nelms's hand, scratch it into James Phipps's arm, and then Jenna tested James Phipps a couple of weeks later by giving him 
an experimental dose of smallpox. The lab did not react. Um, so Jenner from that deduced that he was immune to smallpox. He then went on and he did lots of other subjects and uh, wrote up his results. He first of all sent his paper to the Royal Society, to the president, who was Sir Joseph Banks, uh, who turned it down uh, on the basis of referees' comments, which said, and this is familiar to all of us who still do science, um, this is interesting, but you need to do more experiments. So he went off and did some more experiments and collected some more cases, then wrote them all up and actually had the lot published himself. So he self-published his, his results. The deviation of man from the state in which he was originally placed by nature seems to have proved for him a prolific source of diseases. From the love of splendour, from the indulgences of luxury and from his fondness for amusement, he has familiarised himself with a great number of animals, which may not originally have been intended for his associates. In this dairy country a great number of cows are kept, and the office of milking is performed indiscriminately by men and maidservants. One of the former having been appointed to apply dressings to the heels of a horse affected with the grease, and not paying due attention to cleanliness, incautiously bears his part in milking the cows, with some particles of the infectious matter adhering to his fingers. When this is the case, it commonly happens that a disease is communicated to the cows, and from the cows to the dairymaids, which spreads through the farm until the most of the cattle and domestics feel its unpleasant consequences. This disease has obtained the name cowpox. Morbid matter of various kinds, when absorbed into the system, may produce effects in some degree similar. But what renders cowpox virus so extremely singular is that the person who has been thus affected is forever after secure from the infection of the smallpox. Neither exposure to the variolus effluvia nor the insertion of the matter into the skin producing this distemper. And that was the, the famous inquiry, as it's called, um, which came out in 1798 and was an immediate sensation. Uh, people saw the potential, vaccination set off. Um, within a few years, it had gone all the way around the world. People were doing it in every continent. Uh, and the curious paradox was that back in England, Jenner was actually facing quite concerted opposition to vaccination and to his own shortcomings as a scientist. What effect did the first uh, public health campaigns to vaccinate people, what effect did that have on the uh, prevalence of smallpox? It, it took some years for the effects of vaccination to become apparent on a large scale. Um, but within a decade, uh, there was an entire region of Italy, Lombardy, um, which was declared free of smallpox for the first time in its history. And um, a gentleman called the Sacco had been very, very energetic in spreading the word, and he brought the church on board. So the message to get vaccinated, get your children vaccinated, actually went out from every pulpit as well as from every doctor. So Lombardy was the first proof of concept that vaccination could actually not only protect individuals, but could clear a defined geographical area from smallpox. And then some years after that, Sweden said that it no longer had endemic smallpox. Uh, and then after that, one by one, other countries popped up as well. I think we can safely say that the vaccination has saved hundreds of millions from death. Absolutely. Uh, even during the 20th century, I mean, the, the last natural case of smallpox was in 1978. So in its last 78 years of life, from, uh, from 1900 to 1978, 
even while it was in retreat and being pushed out by vaccination, smallpox still killed 300 million people. Um, so the number of lives saved from, from vaccination against smallpox must be countless hundreds of millions of people, um, if you look at the way that smallpox behaved in the past. And the other thing to remember, of course, is that this wasn't just smallpox. Uh, Jenner's discovery turned out to be one of the most um, adaptable of the transferable technologies in medicine. And we now have to, if we're thinking of his contribution, again, he wasn't the only one, but he, he got the ball rolling at a time when there was a lot of resistance to it. So he can claim at least part of the credit for all of the other diseases that have been brought under control by immunization against other infections. So he, he's, he's got an awful lot of credit, really. Mm-hmm. Shall we talk a bit about the accolades that greeted Jenner's discovery, mainly, as you say, overseas in Europe and elsewhere? Um, what were some notable examples of those? <laughs> well, there's, there's some great things listed in uh, Barron's Life of Jenner. There's a, a handwritten note signed Marie uh, with a diamond ring, which actually came from the Empress of Russia. Uh, the chiefs of the five tribes of North American and Canadian Indians sent him a list of reverential titles, which included um, oh, Slayer of This and King of That. It's a wonderful whole page in, uh, in the Baron book. The one that catches everybody's attention is Napoleon. Even though France and England were locked in war and uh, you know, Trafalgar was only a couple of years off, Jenner wrote to Napoleon to ask for the release of a couple of uh, prisoners of war who were, who were English doctors stuck in France. And uh, Napoleon is reputed to have said, ah, Jenner, I can refuse that man nothing, and promptly had the prisoners released. And Gareth, tell us about the opposition he received. Uh, they say a prophet is without honour in his own land. I think, in fact, you mentioned that in, in the book you've just written on, on Jenner. Um, can you describe what, what he faced back here in England? Yes, um, yeah, I think it's like any new advance. I don't think doctors always welcome change. And uh, at the time, people were making vast amounts of money out of variolation. Uh, this sounds an odd thing to do, but in fact, it was the, the precursor of vaccination. It was giving people what was hoped to be a mild dose of smallpox from a subject with a mild case or a, a not very extensive rash. It did work, but obviously it had risks. You could sometimes, if you're unlucky, kill the subject. And uh, people charged vast amounts of money for, for this. So when vaccination came along, and it, suddenly these variolators realized that here was something which was better than they were doing. And anybody could do it. All you had to do was find a case of cowpox, which actually could be quite tricky because it was rather a rare disease, uh, collect some of the pus and scratch it in, uh, and that would be it. Um, there were quite a few unpleasant people at the top of the, uh, the medical hierarchy, particularly in London. George Pearson, there was a man called Rowley, uh, and they set out to demolish Jenner's reputation. Uh, Rowley came at it from a, a very bizarre angle and actually uh, published a paper showing that children who'd been vaccinated were actually turning into cows. They were running around on all fours bellowing, and they had lumps growing out of their forehead that he thought would turn into horns. And there's a picture of a, of a lad whose face is actually turning into the face of a cow. So some really quite astonishing stuff from the medical profession. Uh, the church rose up in arms as well. Um, probably this was because the church used smallpox as a weapon to ensure compliance. You know, it was a, a curse sent from God to 
to treat people who'd sinned. John's distemper was confluent smallpox. He had been inoculated, doubtless, by the devil. Disease is sent by provenance as punishment for sin. Preventing that sin is diabolical operation. And it was quite a good way of making sure that people read the Bible and stuck to what it said. So when vaccination comes along, it sort of breaks the, the, the stranglehold of the church on an overcompliant flock. So they tried to portray vaccination as the work of the devil, and they dug up various biblical quotes to try and do that. Um, later on, when vaccination became compulsory under the Vaccination Act, then you had all the personal liberty people jumping on the bandwagon. And again, it was Jenner. He, he was an unfortunate man because he took all the flack from all these various causes, uh, not only during his life, but actually when he was long dead as well. Well, that takes us very nicely to the story of, of Jenner's statue. Gareth, would you like to, to tell us about that? Yes. Um, this was some years after Jenner had died, and um, there, you know there were lots of statues and things popping up all over the world, but nothing much in England. There's a statue of Jenner is in Gloucester Cathedral, um, but a public... Uh, subscription was, uh, was, was raised to, to get money for a statue of Jenner to go in Trafalgar Square alongside the nation's other heroes. Uh, and this was eventually done nearly 30 years after, after Jenner's death. And it was opened with true Victorian pomp and circumstance by Prince Albert, who unveiled the statue. Um, and it sat there, and everybody was very happy with it. Um, but meanwhile, in the background, the anti-vaccination people, who were actually politically very well connected, um, decided that this was not a good thing. And uh, four years after it was unveiled by Prince Albert, uh, Jenner's statue was quietly and without any consultation or fuss at all, just carted off, <laughs> leaving an empty plinth. And uh, it was carted off into Kensington Gardens, where it remains to this day. Yes, it's, it's interesting... This is what an introductory lecture published in the British Medical Journal of October 1862 says. Yet the pitiful, pitiful memorial which in the public square hard by Trafalgar Square had been raised to Jenner had been banished, even with ignominy, from that honourable neighbourhood of men, esteemed great because they killed their fellow creatures, whereas he only saved them. So, uh, sadly, uh, that had no effect... Um, it's remained in Kensington Gardens. It's there to this day, is that correct, Gareth? Very much so, very much so. And you are part of this campaign to get Jenner back in Trafalgar Square. Well, I, I'm a very strong supporter of the campaign. Um, there are lots of uh, people involved here. The, the Jenner Museum in Berkeley, um, which I can thoroughly commend, it's, uh, it's a wonderful memorial not only to Edward Jenner and his work, it's actually housed in the, in, in the building that the house that Jenner owned. So the chantry that uh, Jenner bought for his, himself, his wife, and his young family um, is now the Edward Jenner Museum. So we have a number 10 Downing Street petition, uh, which uh, I think people have until sometime in early July to sign up to. Um, and this is to try and persuade the government to put Edward Jenner's statue back where it belongs, as you say, alongside the nation's other heroes, um, I think it's uh, incongruous, really, that uh, he is not celebrated as a national hero in the same way that the others are. Um, they 
obviously defended the, this nation's freedom against uh, numerous enemies. Uh, friends and enemies come and go. Smallpox is something that was around for many centuries uh, and was a consistent enemy of every nation on the planet. And it does seem a little bit unkind and a bit daft to celebrate people who won transient victories that might have had an effect for a century or two and not to celebrate the achievements of somebody who freed the entire species from you know, one of the greatest curses in its history. And a fitting note to end on will be would be the headline from an editor's choice in the BMJ of 1996, which thunders, let's have Jenner's column instead of Nelson's. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about the life of Edward Jenner, Gareth has actually written a book. It's entitled Angel of Death, The Story of Smallpox. And the proceeds go to the Edward Jenner Museum. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to the authors of a clinical review into cannabis use. What should doctors be doing about it? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.